<coughs> okay, let's, let's pray, and then I'll try to explain what, what we're going to try to do tonight. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for a place that we can come to, and we can learn of your works and history and all your hand in it. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact, well, as the psalm says, you do what you please in heaven and in earth and in the sea. So we're studying all of the decisions that you made that we call history. So guide our thoughts, I pray tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, last week, I think we quit with um, Pope Gregory. Is that correct? And some of the doctrines that began to take hold um, during his time. His time was about 590 to 604 that he was the Pope. He is the first time the word Pope is officially used. And it's, that signals a rise in um, papal power. Okay, Now, to continue to show kind of the arc of papal power brings us to... Um, about, well, almost, about 150 years later. So between 604 when Gregory dies and picking up in the, well, early seven, so really 100, 100 years, we'll say, um, <clears throat> we're going to skip, okay? I don't know what went on too much, but anyway. Um, We'll move on then and pick up some necessary, I guess you'd call it secular history, but it does involve the missionizing, the evangelizing of some of these northern tribes um, that will then influence the formation of what was initially called the Holy Roman Empire. Okay? Um, that really dates to about 800. It's not kind of officially um, done away with until almost a thousand years. In fact, Napoleon did away with the nominal Holy Roman Emperor in 1804. So, um, it's a long time that this concept of, of a Christianized reincarnation of the Roman Empire um, that dominates all of the Middle Ages. Okay? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> maybe just a couple of things. Um, in fact, I'll just mention one doctrine that we ended up with Pope Gregory that continues to grow, and that is the idea that the Pope, it evolves. I couldn't tell you when somebody woke up in the morning and this, this doctrine was in force, and it wasn't yesterday. I don't, it's hard. But it became a doctrine <clears throat> that to disobey, uh, disagree, with anything that the Pope proclaimed, you couldn't go to heaven. Okay? Um, and I don't want to get off the subject, but here's what happens. Um, there's been a subtle, long, centuries-long shift away from the authority of Scripture to the authority um, well, so-called so apostolic, but primarily it comes down to Peter, the authority of Peter, because Peter supposedly was first pope. He wasn't, but nevertheless. And so the popes 
claim to power was always that they op- occupied the seat of Peter and the Peter's authority as the chief apostle, which he wasn't, but nevertheless, um, the twisting of the scripture where Jesus said, Peter, on this rock, you know, I'll build my church, that he was saying that to Peter, that he built the church on Peter, which he didn't say. But nevertheless, that authority that Peter supposedly exerted stayed miraculously. And every succeeding pope had the same authority that Peter had. So, you can see how the idea begins to germinate and it finally comes to a point where it's a stated doctrine that to disagree with Peter, the power of Peter, how could you go to heaven? So, that's another part of the power that attached to the office of Pope. Um, And let me say this. Um, That typifies the the source of authority to this day as a difference between Protestants, allegedly, because now Protestants are a mess too, but general Protestantism cites as its authority the Scripture. Catholicism is the church, specifically the Pope, the leadership of the church. Okay, um, That's shifting from God to man, really. So that um, <clears throat> because the popes and the leadership of the church believed something and they believed it long enough, that made it doctrinally true. Does that make any sense? Um, so you don't need to go to scripture. You go to tradition. Now tradition is extremely important, but it's, it, doesn't, it cannot supersede scripture. But the way doctrines come around to being formalized in Catholicism is we believed it, we've believed it long enough that we can turn around and say because we believed it long enough, it's true. Okay? Um, it's kind of like the fable or whatever of the cannon that in the village, the cannon that was fired at noon saying it was noon in the clockmaker's shop and all of his clocks set to noon and trying to find out what the time really was. The clockmaker said, well, I set my clocks to 12 when I hear the cannon. And the cannon guy says, I, I, um, <laughs> you know, I fire the cannon when I hear the, the grandfather clock went off. It's man's standard. And it's worthless. Um, I can't remember. I mean, it's well, you go to virtually Gregory's time a little bit later, seven, six, seven hundreds. If you don't agree with the Pope, you go to hell. You know when that was made a doctrine? I think I'm correct on this because a doctrine of Mary is involved here too. The infallibility of the Pope when he's speaking ex cathedra, which means from his chair, his throne in, in the Vatican. 1870. So a, a doctrine floated around that was cited by people and believed. It, it, it isn't finally made an official doctrine for um, what? 14, 15, in several different cases. Centuries. And then finally, it's because we believed it so long, it must be true, so now we make it official. Okay? All right. <clears throat> now, shifting here to this map, there's not a thing on here as far as the... Um, this is a map showing about the sevens, seven hundreds. Okay? So there's not much that we recognize here. 
except some of the cities, um, which may be by different names, but were basically um, there. So what I want to try to deal with here is the whole rise of a people and a kingdom originally called the Franks. Okay? Now the Franks are the predecessors to France. Okay? But this is one thing that I'm reminded of reading through all this. Um, how many... <laughs> You're not, we're not going to do anything to you. But how many of you here have, say, a significant amount of German in you? Anybody know? Okay, we got, okay, a good number. Okay, you people. <laughs> um, now, I am, I want you to know, I am pure um, English, Irish, Welsh. Okay, now that's, there's no poisoning of Germanness in there, okay? Um, but I, I, too late, I discovered my wife's ancestry. <laughs> and I'm going to let you guess, this is the greatest favor I ever did to her, for her. I'm going to let you guess or what her... Um, nationality uh, heritage is from her maiden name, Bengestorf, okay? There is a town in central Germany today that she traces her ancestry to, and it's called Bengestorf. This is the name of the town, okay? So I, you know, deal with it. Um, but it's amazing good and bad, really, it is amazing the influence of Germans, and, and not necessarily the German boundaries of today, but the Germanic tribes, every single one, virtually, of all of these, the Vandals, the Visigoths, all these people that migrated south and ended up for centuries attacking Rome, and they were always having to protect the northern boundaries of the Roman Empire, were the Germans, or Germanic tribes, okay? Um, now, there were, there were some even northern up Scandinavia, um, but th that whole northern European, uh, German slash Scandinavian, were terribly warlike. They were very skilled, um, soldiers and they're the Vikings um, rape and pillage that's all they <laughs> that's what they did um, and burn and whatever so once again um, today's French to whom the Germans are just you know have been for centuries the worst enemies are cousins at best, maybe closer than that. Um, but these Germanic tribes were perpetually the threat to the northern boundary of the Roman Empire. They end up, as they begin to move south, Christianity sent missionaries to them. We talked about that before them the monks and the monasteries and missionary efforts. And they really conquered spiritually the conquerors. As they began to move south, um, they would encounter, um, and most of them were, a, a blanket term for all of them was, was barbarians. Okay? That term fit in a sense, because they were way more uh, into tribalism. They had very little organized government. Um, they were led, it, it was clans. Um, it would be similar to what um, was encountered in the settling of the United States with um, the American Indians. 
and and now I'm really off the subject, but um, one of the problems that the um, in the 18 second half after the Civil War in dealing with um, the Indians, especially the ones out west, who were seemingly more warlike or whatever, we treated them as if they had a connected um, system of government. And they didn't. And so uh, uh, you, you weren't even chief for life. If you, if you got run over in a battle, you lost your chieftainism, um, and the braves would attach to whoever killed the most in the last battle a week ago, and that's now who they follow. It was a very loose tribal kind of organization. So you have treaties that a bunch of army and government people sit around and they sit down across and they smoke the peace pipe and then they get several chiefs who are chief for maybe a couple years. They sign a treaty. Well, it's just them. They're not representative of even the rest of the tribe, let alone the whole of a bunch of tribes. They don't represent anybody but themselves. And they're they're uh, co-signers. Um, That's the way they think. Okay, Red Cloud goes down to Laramie and he signs the 1868 treaty. Big deal, I didn't sign it. That's, that was their thought. It didn't occur to them that he represented them and somehow that they were obligated to do something he signed. But then when me, I don't care what Red Cloud signed. I may be a uh, Sue, but... I'm going to hunt over here. I don't care if he signed that he wouldn't. I go hunt. You people broke the treaty. And I'm going, what? I didn't sign it. He didn't represent. They had no concept of that. That's exactly what the Germanic tribes were like that came south. And they picked up two things. When they ran into the Romans... They picked up, later of course, after Christianity spread, they picked up Christianity, or they were exposed to it. They were also exposed to the Roman system of government. And so, in a sense, even though they were the, um, and they conquered, yet they assimilated some of the best of the Roman Empire in its government, and then of course, the religion of Christianity um, and ultimately though they were the conquerors they were conquered they were changed drastically by what they encountered and then what they assimilated into okay this is a story then of that whole process and specifically um, with the country that turns out to be uh, France, but the Franks were a much larger group and had l much larger territory. So, um, <clears throat> in the first guy that was considered um, a Frank um, was a guy, if you're looking for names, by the way, for kids or grandkids, um, we got some great ones here. Clovis um, is this guy's name. Uh, Clovis was baptized as a Rome Christian in 481. That's pretty early. Um, he was a part of this, the Franks, Germanic tribe, migrating south. Okay, And it took in most cases, it took as much as 200 years for them to gradually move south and start encountering Roman civilization. But the first Frank was a guy named Clovis. He was there. He, he led them. He was a warrior. Um, and the interesting thing that was why I don't know. Most of the tribes that moved south 
um, the, the front edge of their migrations, which occurred clear back in the threes, even, 300s, they became um, primarily Aryan Christians. Um, those that believed in the heresy of Arianism, which was that Jesus was the highest creation, but he was not equal with the Father. Um, they denied the Trinity, really, and denied the full deity of Christ. Okay? That brand of Christianity, though it was labeled a heresy as early as, the, as 325, never really got stamped out. Um, so it was significant that Clovis was baptized as a Roman Catholic. That's an early name for Roman Catholicism, but the, the Orthodox Christianity, not Arian, okay? Which gave the Roman Catholic Church then the beginning of a foothold in this new group they're starting to encounter that is streaming south called the Franks, okay? Now, <clears throat> um, I can't remember how. Clovis kind of set up, you could call it a, a kingdom as, as that would go as far as the barbarians, but it was a turning point in European history because gradually the Aryan Christians died out. Arianism died out. And so to the north now, there, there became a growing opportunity for evangelism and growing converts uh, to Roman Catholicism or true Christianity, okay? Um, now, <clears throat> um, he, he converted and then... Um, let me read a couple things or mention a couple things here. Um, his conversion was a lot like Constantine. He goes into battle and he has a Christian wife and she's working on him to become a Christian. He's just a pagan, um, worships trees and rocks and stuff. And he gets into a battle and because his wife's been, you know, working on him, and people have been talking to him, and monks have been talking to him. He decides he'll try Jesus, I guess. And so it turns out that he thinks he's convinced Jesus helped him win whatever victory it was. And so he, quote, <laughs> converts, okay? Now, we don't, uh, you can't know the depths of either their understanding or their intentions or anything else. But um, Clovis decides to get baptized and then, if I'm not mistaken, I think, um, yeah, um, clear up, let's see here. Okay, if you were to go in this, in this map I gave you, um, can you find Paris? Go slightly up and to the right to, to what I would pronounce it, Reims, but I have no idea how the French would. But anyway, R-E-I-M-S, see that? Okay. This is where Clovis, his official baptism takes place as head of this bunch of Franks, okay? Now, he is baptized along with 3,000 of his soldiers at the same time, okay? Now, again, this is like a lot of the conversions that were mass conversions. The king or the general or whoever converted, so I guess I do too. Um, you adopt the religion of your sovereign, okay? Now, that's, that lasted a long time. You go clear up into, um, well, the 1600s, late 1500s and 16s in, in uh, England. And you have Mary, Queen of Scots, comes to the throne. She's a Catholic. So all the Protestants are scared to death. Um, the The... The um, monasteries that had all been closed um, and done away with could get reopened. They get their land all back. And then, you know, she helps persecute the um, Protestants and becomes known as Bloody Mary. And then, you know, they're all desperately praying she dies. And she does. And so then, I think it was her son James, I can't remember, um, comes to the throne, the one who commissioned the King James Version of the Scripture. Um, 
And it's an about face. Because whatever the sovereign is, the nation is. We don't understand, you know, we don't think like that. Um, but that's just custom to them. So Clovis, the general, he decides he's going to be a Christian and he gets baptized, so his soldiers do. Um, now, he made his Clovis set up his first capital um, in Paris, or what is today Paris. Um, and he lives into the 500s. He divides, he, 511 he dies, and he divides um, his territory, which was a pretty good-sized territory, um, among four heirs, four sons, okay? That was a common thing that they all did, which was always destabilizing. You end up with four rulers of various gifts over various territories. And, you know, it's much easier for an outside enemy to divide and conquer or just attack one of the provinces or whatever you want to call them, duchies they called them, too. Um, it's a dumb thing to do, but that was what they did. They divided things up. Uh, Constantine did that, divided up the kingdom uh, four ways. So at any rate, it, it had a destabilizing <clears throat> effect. Um, but so for a good, probably another um, little over 100 years, things descended in the world of the Franks into sort of chaos. And you just had a weakened situation and it was every man for himself and it was kind of um, a mess. Then um, a guy down the road, um, <clears throat> almost 100, in fact, uh, right at 100 years after Clovis dies, his descendants, and here's a couple other good names, um, Clotaire, um, the second, and then his son, Dagobert. <clears throat> um, and they reigned from 613 to about 640, okay? Now, um, fast forward, I guess you'd say, to um, the early seven hundreds or the late late um, sixes um, in 687 another descendant of this original guy Clovis named Pepin the <laughs> second okay um, he comes to um, the throne he is he gathers things back together he, he does a lot of organizing and gets the Frankish kingdom back um, straightened up <clears throat> and he dies in 714 now um, this Pepin the second had um, just some grandsons and an illegitimate son named Charles okay and all this if you don't memorize this you'll probably be okay um, but this illegitimate son Charles ends up um, they have a civil war between the grandsons and, and Charles. He ends up winning outright, and he becomes the sole um, king, if you want to call it, over this Frankish empire. They named him Charles Martel, Martel meaning the hammer, okay, which had to do with the fact that he was a great warrior and so forth, okay? Now, <clears throat> this guy, Charles Martel, his claim to fame, not only that he strengthened the Frankish kingdom, organized it better, captured more territory, but remember, I think it was last, maybe last week, we talked about the birth of and the explosion of Islam and the um, Islamic armies. They came up Palestine, through Palestine, the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, and began to come over the top, 
of the northern shore. Meanwhile, most of their strength was across the top of North Africa, jumped over Gibraltar, came up through Spain, went into what's today Frank, uh, France, which was the heart of Frankish kingdom. Okay? This, um, they got all the way to a place called Tours. We'd, I'd pronounce it, I don't know what the French would. That's where... They seemed to have up a head of steam. No one could stand against them. Um, Charles Martel went out against them in battle and in 742 at Tours defeated them, defeated them so soundly that they retreated down into Spain. They never came into French, what became French territory again. Okay, so Martel then, he's... He's a big, you know, man on campus, okay? Um, <clears throat> he reigns, um, he reigns into, um, well into the late um, 700s. And then one of his, um, one of his sons begins to reign in 768. His name was also Charles, okay? Now, this is what happens when Charles, who takes over in 768, reigns to 814. This Charles becomes the name we're familiar with, Charlemagne. Okay? Now, um, Charlemagne, he doesn't get called that till, he, till later, but um, Charlemagne gains even more territory, strengthens the kingdom to where it takes in a lot of what is today. It takes in France. It takes in um, northern Italy, um, parts of Switzerland, what became Austria, um, about half of what became um, western half of what today is Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands. Um, he had a big chunk of property, okay? Now, Meantime, there's another group of people, and they also came from Germanic tribes, okay? They're called the Lombards, okay? The Lombards didn't go kind of west over into what's today France and all that. They just focused on the boot, Italy. And so they came down invading northern, um, and they started clear back in the fours, Okay, um, now you're talking 300 years later, and the the Lombards were a, were a thorn in the side to the Roman Empire for all that time. They came down into northern Italy, did penetrate further, but Lombardy, which is still to this day a part of um, the territory called in northern Italy, um, that's what they're named after. Um, and so their, their um, effect is still in the name of northern um, Italy. They, <coughs> the Lombards, finally made it down to Rome and infiltrated and they would get along for a while and then they would didn't and then they'd have an uprising and then they'd calm down and so it was a mingled situation there of of these different peoples and sometimes they'd get along and sometimes they didn't well there's a pope but his name's leo it's not the leo from back in the 400s um but this guy um i can't remember if it's leo the second or the third anyway they're start they're starting to fight over who gets to be pope this is in the meantime, with all this going on with Charlemagne and all this. Well, this Leo II or the Third, um, he leaves St. Peter's Church, the Basilica, which is there today. He has a mass routine deal. He has a mass. He leaves. It's night. And a whole bunch of Lombards kidnap him. And they take him in the dark to some... Um, I think they took him to the um, Monte Cassino, 
That's the name of that famous monastery that you'll see in a lot of pictures of World War II that they did their best not to bomb. Um, but at any rate, they kidnapped him, took him off, and they wanted to get rid of him as pope and put somebody else in as pope. And so they, they charged him, um, they accused him of adultery. Now, what are the chances that that was right? Probably close to 100%, okay? Um, it wasn't very long after that that one of the popes, by the way, um, had 15 children. It's quite a feat being celibate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, that, was, that seriously was how rotten things were getting. But nevertheless, they accused Leo of adultery, okay? Well, Leo's buddies, um, they all gathered together. They found out where he was at. They went and re-kidnapped him and got him back to Rome and into the safety of, um, you know, St. Peter's. Um, <clears throat> and so Leo scared. Leo um, sends... And well, he ended up going by himself or going himself, but he sends word all the way from Rome to Paris to get word to Charlemagne to come and help him. Um, the Lombards are trying to overthrow me and, of course, take all the property and so forth. Um, early on, um, there would have been much more property now under the Vatican, if you want to call it, under the church, um, by this point in the 700s. But in the, um, when Pope Gregory dies in 600 or 604, they owned 1,800 square miles, he did, the church did, in the boot and toe of Italy. And those were called papal states, okay? They didn't pay taxes. I mean, they were, they were on their own, and um, so as long as the church was running things, it didn't matter. But when secular governments later took over, the, the papal states were, I think the papal states were still a part of Italy up into the really late 1800s. Um, and so anyway, so Leo, Leo needs help. And here's, here is a, here's a reason why that's a big deal. Here's the first time that the, um, the church authority has to appeal to the secular authority to keep him on the throne as pope. Okay? Well, there's a merging, in a sense, of dependence. It's a, it's a, they both need each other. And so it's a long ways, obviously. So... In 1799 is when Leo sends for help from Charlemagne, okay? I'm not 17, 7, 799. He can't get there till 800, okay? So Charlemagne comes because it's winter or whatever. So he waits till spring and summer. And he gets to Rome um, to help fight the Lombards, push them out, and save Leo's hide, okay? In thanks, Leo has a huge mass in St. Peter's, and Charlemagne is there. And who knows, because, you know, this many years later, nobody knows for sure, Charlemagne at least seemed to say, seemed to pretend to be just totally surprised. Okay. But after the Mass is over, Pope Leo approaches Charlemagne at his seat of honor for the Mass. And, you know, he's got behind him, you know, <laughs> you, you want to guess what's in, guess which hand. He's got a crown. And he puts this crown on Charlemagne and pronounces him emperor of the holy roman empire okay that was on christmas day in 800 that's the beginning of 
what was called the Holy Roman Empire. It was a, an attempt to reconstitute the wonderful organization and all that of the Roman Empire, um, but now Christian. Um, and the technical term became Christendom. Now, we still use that word, but not too much anymore. Um, one thing, Christendom is now become a colonial term. You know, in the whole political correct, um, it's a colonizing term. It's an oppressive term. Um, and so that's another reason it doesn't get used too much anymore. Um, but we'll, we may, I, I don't know what all we're going to sing, uh, we'll likely sing... Um, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. You remember that? Okay. In there it says something to the effect um, of the bells ringing and so forth through all of Christendom. Okay. Well, that's still a remnant of the notion of, of a spiritual kingdom within an earthly, in an earth, earthly world. Okay. But it goes clear back to the Holy Roman um, Empire. And the first crowned king was um, Charlemagne. Now he was made that by the Pope, okay, which assumes on the part of the Pope that he retained power over secular government. Okay, um, He's the one that crowned him. Now, this jump a thousand years ahead. The, I don't even remember who he was, but the so-called um, Holy Roman Emperor was going to place, or maybe it was the Pope, I can't remember, place the crown on Napoleon Bonaparte in 1804. Anybody know what Napoleon did? Took the crown out of his hands and put it on his own head. That was not just because he was in a hurry or whatever else. It was a symbolic move. I'm not under you, okay? Um, I am, I'm the emperor, um, so I crown myself, okay? Um, it's amazing to me, too, how heavy the, the church for a long time, the Roman church as it went through the centuries from 800 on, heavily, heavily depending on France as the military arm keeping the Catholic Church in power. Today, after the French Revolution, the, the Catholic Church, like the Cathedral of Notre Dame and all the Catholic Church doesn't own one of them. All the cathedrals in France, the Catholic Church does not own one of them. The state owns them. That's a result of the uh, revolution, which got rid of church. Um, there was the statue to reason. Um, it was the you know culmination of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> but so France, of all of Europe, is far and away, I mean wildly far and away, the most anti-Christian and anti-church um, um, of any of the European countries. Yet for a thousand years, they were heavily involved in propping up you know, the Pope and so forth. Okay, now... Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much further um, to go with all of this um, except to bring us to the point where you have, you, here's what you have the start of too. You have the Pope reaching out to the king of what was becoming the dominant power to preserve his uh, bishopric, to keep him as Pope. Um, who you flee to for help is one day going to end up be your competitor. Okay, so even with Charlemagne, who did seem to be a pretty transparently 
sincere Catholic. He made sure that um, when he was when he was later um, kind of cemented, I guess you'd say, in his position. Um, the Pope made the journey to a German, it's today in Germany, I think, it's right in the edge, of Aachen. And he'd spent nine years building a cathedral there. Um, and now my son Stephen, who spent a lot of time in Germany studying and working on his doctorate, um, has gone to that cathedral and seen the actual it just looks like a cheap chair. He's taken pictures and showed it to me. The throne, if you want to call it that, that Charlemagne sat in um, when he was kind of recrowned in a more official um, kind of ceremony by whoever was the pope at that particular time. And he wanted it done in the cathedral that he built. Now, Aachen was a big, big battleground in World War II. Um, Patton went through there, and they, you know, they did their best not to shoot up the cathedral. Okay, um, that so that thing, that thing's been there since the 800s. And um, but anyway, he made the Pope come from Rome all the way up there, and he put it at the northern boundary of of Charlemagne of his whole kingdom, um, so that he wouldn't have to meddle too much or be meddled with the Pope. And so already there was some competition beginning there. Um, and that, that kind of seesawed back and forth for centuries also. Now, um, let's stop here for a second. This will give you to chant two things. One, wake to, to, to wake yourself up. Uh, number two, any, any questions so far? Um, even sort of related to this. Anybody? Um, <clears throat> I think that we'll um, maybe just um, as far as the kind of the secular history and how the two um, come together, we'll um, quit on that and then just look, look a little more at the just steady, very slow, but steady, incremental um, power creep of the papacy, okay? Um, not only was this doctrine becoming more and more acceptable that you disagree with the Pope, you can't go to heaven. Um, I just touched on last week um, something that will, I'll take a minute here. Um, of course, the fundamental term that's used towards individuals um, is called excommunication. That is cutting off access to communion. Now, of course, the doctrine in Catholicism had um, grown to where the, um, the regular taking of communion, if not daily, at least weekly, is what kept you spiritually alive. Without it, you could not live spiritually. And so the ultimate power that the church had over individuals was to deny them communion. And that, that sent you to hell. Or really got you in line in a hurry. Um, you gave whatever they said you got to give. You did whatever they told you to do. Because um, they literally, then, the church, the authority of the church, um, extended into eternity. Okay? Um, now, there was hardly anybody, uh, even the converted pagans, there's good and bad, I guess. 
nearly everybody. You couldn't find anybody unless they were some pagan back in the woods somewhere. You couldn't find anybody that didn't hold to the basic Christian principles. There's heaven, there's a hell, there's a God, there's judgment, and so forth. Okay? So, universal um, intimidation was pretty easy. We'll cut you off communion, you're going to hell. Nobody, literally, nobody, we can't even understand this, but nobody stepped forward and said, I don't believe in hell. It just didn't even occur to them. They believed it. Kings believed it. So, that power took on more power when the Pope, the popes came up with a further uh, kind of graduation of individual excommunication to um, regional excommunication. That was called an interdiction. And so the way, remember, I, I am the religion of my sovereign, my king, my whoever he is, okay? So, um, if I have anything against that country or that province or whatever the case is, um, I want to put pressure on them. Um, well, here's something that happened a lot. All the Catholic churches owned wherever they were at. England didn't matter where they were at. Um, they gradually became, in almost every case, the largest landholders, other than, say, the king, in any country. Well, they would often, the king, just like Biden, <laughs> man, there's some tax money I'm not getting. Um, so they would appropriate to themselves some of the lands that the monasteries owned or that the church owned or whatever, and ultimately Rome owned it, and they would confiscate that property, kick the monks out of the monastery, and take the building over, use it for something else, maybe barracks for the army or whatever. But anyway, they would figure out a way that they would take that property and use it and take it away from the church. Well, there was a remedy for that. The Pope would threaten, and in some cases he actually followed through on it, but would threaten in the interdiction. The whole country doesn't get communion. None of the priests, the archbishop, the bishops, none of them who are under my command will give you communion across your whole land, including the king. Well, there would be such an outcry of just genuine terror from the lowliest peasant clear up through the mobility to whoever there's no way you could stand against that. So the king would have to cave. It also became, within about um, 300 years or so, it became a wonderful incentive to, for the pope to say to various kings, uh, we're getting ready for the fourth or the third or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh crusade. We need some money. We need armaments. We need soldiers. And I am levying... You, you give me, you come up with 10,000 soldiers and you come up with this much money and you do this and you do that. And if they, if they drag their feet, okay, put an interdiction on you. Whole lot of, your whole country's going to hell. And they'd knuckle every time. That um, maybe begins to help us see the incredible grip um, not over, not only over economics and everything else, but people's souls, their conscience. And um, I have a hard time identifying with that. I think any American does, any modern person does, generally. Um, you just don't even think that way. If I, you know, that that the the minister could tell. I I knew a guy. He's he's now in heaven. Um, he was my dad's generation or a little bit younger, but I pastored alongside of him, knew him for a long time. His name, his name was Lee de Saunier, um, French name, and his family, is, uh, even he lived, he was born in Canada in 
uh, Quebec. And he remembers as a little kid how poor they were. They had one milk cow, okay? He remembers, he says, um, the day when the Catholic priest came out to their farm and demanded that cow from them because they hadn't paid, you know, whatever, and watched him lead it away. And he, he, he told me, he says, I hated the Catholic, I hated God, and I hated the church as a little kid. Now, he later figured out what was going on. He got saved. He was a great preacher um, <clears throat> for years and years and years. Um, but, I mean, that would have been in probably at his age, I, I imagine that was probably in the 30s. Um, so I have my sister and um, her husband were missionaries in Argentina. He grew up in Bolivia, but all those South American countries, heavily, heavily, heavily Catholic. Um, and, you know, the, the, the priests would just tell the people all kinds of things about the missionaries. Literally. They, um, they eat, they'll eat your children. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. And, you know, if you, if you are um, illiterate, you've got a little garden somewhere you scrape by and try to subsistence living, you don't even know how to read or write, and the priest who, you know, tells you what to do, tells you don't go listen to those people, or they'll take your kids, or if you go listen to them, we won't let you have communion anymore, you do it. So, um, this was, the, this was the condition a good 600 years before the Reformation in the 1500s. And it only got worse. The, let me quit with this. It's, we'll see the beginning here. Um, we don't meet next week, by the way. But two weeks from tonight. By the way, in two weeks from tonight, here's what I think I'm going to do. Well, I'm going to have to do it because I already told a couple of people I was doing it. Um, I asked for questions from people on end time stuff. Remember that? Okay. I got, I must have gotten 15 or 20 good questions, but I only got them from three people. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I figured that if there's only three people submitting questions, that it's not a subject that is just burning in people's minds to take a Sunday and make it a question and answer service. So I told the three people that sent me the questions um, that we'll, two weeks from the night, when we come back after Thanksgiving, we'll take that evening to go over those questions here. Um, I'm subjecting you to that. Um, but anyway, that, so that we'll at least deal with the questions as much as we can um, in a smaller setting and not take a Sunday to do it. Okay, so that, that's my plan. Now, what in the world was I going to say? Um, it was real profound, too. Um, <clears throat> hmm, well, whatever it was, I can't remember it. So, I told somebody today, I... <clears throat> I might have to start taking Prevagen. Is it Prevagen that old people take so that they know where they're at? Um, anyway, so it'll be then um, three weeks from tonight that we, that we get, get back to this. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, we'll start getting into... In the 13s and the 14s, some of the real, real early reformers, like John Huss, um, um, Wycliffe in England, um, some of those people that were before their time, they spoke up and they were alone. They, Savonarola is another one, um, Florence, um, 
famous, famous um, preacher, scared people to death. Uh, they finally burned him um, in the city square, um, burned him at the stake. But all these people were classified as heretics, that they believed false doctrines. Here's the problem. The, the church did what we do today. They just changed the meaning of the word heretic, uh, heretic and heresy. These people, the John Husses, the Savonarolas, um, people um, like that, never denied a single Bible doctrine. They believed it through and through. But they denied the power of the Pope. They denied purgatory. They denied that the Pope had the right to um, withhold communion from you if you don't agree with him. They also denied that the body and blood of Christ actually happened, turned into it when the priest you know, did his blessing over it. They denied nothing that was biblical. But it was labeled heresy because the church equated it to scriptural truth. In fact, um, actually, scriptural truth sank lower than church doctrine. And so, People were, I stood, um, in fact, I got a picture on my phone, several pictures, of where famously um, Henry VIII had uh, two English reformers, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, and Hugh Ridley, um, uh, burned at the stake in the city square in Oxford. Um, the, the, it's marked now, but the spot is still there. Um, and there's a big monument to them that was built, you know, thousand, I don't know how long, long time ago. Um, but at any rate, um, then I'll quit. I think it was Ridley. Ridley was given a chance to re retract his doctrines. Again, not Bible doctrines, but his opposition to the Pope. And he signed a recantation document that spared him from being burned. Well, he instantly regretted it, and so he went back to Oxford where he was a professor and he started teaching again what he was teaching, and of course, it wasn't any time at all. Then word got back that, hey, he's back preaching against the Pope. And so they had a trial, and I, I was, you can stand there and look at the pillar uh, in the Oxford Church, St. Mary's, um, where they they took stone saws and I don't know why they would just mangle a, a cathedral, but they took stone saws and cut a big chunk out of one of these massive carved pillars that holds the thing up where they could mount um, a wooden platform as a the English would call it the dock. And that's where they made um, Cranmer and Ridley, and Cranmer had been Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the church, um, where they stood on a wooden platform while they were being tried, okay? Um, and they, of course, found them guilty. And so they took them down about a mile to the center of Oxford uh, town and burned them at the stake. Ridley, this time, you know, he didn't recant. Um, and so when they started the fire, they tied them to the stake, and when they started the fire, um, Ridley put his hand intentionally, stuck his hand in the flame, and he said, because um, he, he was ashamed that he ever signed a recantation in the first place to get along with the Pope. So he, he said, I want to make sure I don't ever do anything like that again, stuck his hand in first so he wouldn't ever be able to sign a recantation. Of course, they both perished. Um, but anyway, um, that's how far things got to where you no longer were considered a heretic for denying Bible doctrines. It was just denying teachings of the church which were miles from the, church, from the Bible. So, cancel culture has been around a while. 
You know what I mean? Okay, we got to pray and let you get out of here. Father in heaven, <clears throat> I do thank you, Lord, for all the, I guess we thank you for the ease, the, the freedom, the safety, by and large, that we still enjoy to serve you. Um, we don't have to face yet what our fathers and mothers in Christ faced sometimes through their whole lifetime. So instruct us, I pray, with what kind of people went before us and paved the way and wrote the doctrines and hammered out on uh, in their minds the great doctrines of Scripture that we hold to today. We thank you, Lord, for the heritage that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.